0: Hello and welcome everybody, this is Dr. Tully for History 302. Uh, Today we're going to be talking about some of the early recording, some of the early recording, early recorded music within the United States, and also a little bit about what happens when um, African Americans get involved with it. One African American in particular, um, just a little heads up for this one, this is actually on a subject I wrote a book about, so (laughs) don't worry, I'm not assigning my book to you. Uh, It's not fully published yet, it's still the publisher, but uh, once again, this is going to be one of those times where I really try to um, keep myself sparse because I literally wrote hundreds of pages about this, so I could go on for hours. Not going to do that to you. Uh, Also be aware that this doesn't really have that much overlap with the radio thing, which you read, the radio stuff. It's very important, you're going to be quizzing it, but this is going to be a little bit different, a little bit different. So like cinema, like movies, uh, their earliest records start really getting traction in the late 1800s, and it starts growing in the 1890s. Uh, it's another Edison creation. Uh, Thomas Edison, he's um, not necessarily directly responsible. Like, his labs do it. He has a lot of people who work for him, and he kind of buys or you know, owns their um, inventions from him. This is another Edison invention that comes about, this kind of phonograph. Uh, Like I said, starts getting traction mainly in the eighteen nineties. Eighteen nineties is where you really start having a lot of records. Uh, Very much seen as a novelty slash technology. There's not a lot of influence put upon the content of the records. Not too much emphasis placed upon like different genres or whatever. Uh, Whenever they do make sales, it's more of for the machine themselves, not necessarily for the content, not necessarily for the record. Uh, the music is pretty much an afterthought. It's more of a proof of concept. Does that make sense? It's just like, this is a brand new technology. We can do recorded music. The real novelty is the fact that you can hear sound and you can hear recorded music, not the stuff that's being said. So so really, the records were kind of an afterthought. It's like, you know, what what records best uh, in this time period? There is no, like, sound mixing. Uh, certain instruments just don't pick up very well on these records. Um Spoken voice is probably the most common because it's fairly easy to do. All somebody has to do is speak into the gramophone and they're able to record it, get it on wax. Uh, So not that much emphasis placed upon the records themselves. Most of the early uh, musicians don't do it because the records sound kind of bad. And they feel their artistic integrity is better preserved in a concert hall. Remark- regardless of that, there are elements of culture and class in this. Uh, this is to be done for very wealthy people. Uh, remember, we did talk about how America doesn't really have an organic high culture, but America definitely has rich people. And most records of this time period are done for rich people sensibilities. Nothing too scandalous, uh, nothing too overtly you know, sexual or overtly violent, uh, nothing like that. Uh, there's an idea with some of the early boosters that you know maybe we, we can record grand opera so more people can hear it. Uh, that said, though, it, it, it's more the fact that it exists. I'm trying to think of a modern-day equivalent, just where it's more of a proof of concept than actual content. You have this later on with um, televisions, one that we're going to talk about later. Early video games, another thing we talk about, where it's like, hey – Um, You know, it's just impressive that we can put little bleeps and bloops on the screen. You know, there's space invaders coming down. It's not really an epic. It's not anything like The Last of Us or uh, Red Dead Redemption where they really tell a story. Now, by the time we get to the turn of the century, uh, the record business had really solidified into three major firms, uh, which is Edison. Edison is the big one. Uh, You know, Thomas Edison's a company. Uh, Victor, Victor later merges with RCA, RCA Victor, and finally Columbia. And the reason why they're the main 3 record producers is because they actually own patents on the recording process. Um theoretically they have different ways of making records. Uh, the records themselves were not standardized. Uh some of your old Victrolas, that's a Victor record. Uh they're like literal cylinders. They're literal like literal cylinders, like almost like a small toilet paper tube or something sized thing. And, you know, it's recorded on a circle, and the little needle goes around that. Edison has a different process. Columbia has a process It's just a one-sided record process. And so the idea being, you couldn't just buy a record player and put anybody's record on it. It has to be one made by this particular manufacturer. You know, the manufacturer who owns the processing equipment, not necessarily the music themselves. Remember, it's a very expensive process, very much a new process, and the stuff that is recorded is very much done as a type of technology. For a company to put out a record, they have to own a patent on how to do recording equipment, and that's pretty complicated. Now, other companies could make the cabinets, all right? Theoretically, other companies could make the cabinets, uh, you know, the record players. Uh, For instance, a lot of furniture companies. A lot of furniture companies get very big in this time period, uh, making... Large scale, very fancy, very ornate record players, but they're not making the the material itself. They're they're making the the furniture that goes around it. Uh, this might be a little bit before your time, but um, for televisions, back when you had big CRT televisions, you'd have like the entertainment centers, furniture that like housed the TV. Uh, the TV itself was not anything that was you know made by you know the furniture company. Uh, it's made by a different company. Same sort of in, in idea here. So, you know, Edison, Victor, and Columbia let other companies like make some of the cabinets, particularly some of the more ornate cabinets. When it came to the actual recording equipment, that was a heavily patented process that only they could do. Uh, they do have fairly strict control over the content. Uh, these three record companies do. They are getting more into various artists, still very much seen as a high-class endeavor. Uh, However, they do allow for some vanity records. Uh, It starts out actually with things like uh, civic associations and some churches. Like, hey, we want to record something for our members. Just like a little like, hey, we exist. Uh, Some of the earliest records that on these vanity presses are things like by insurance companies. Just basically, hey, you know, we want to let our audience base know here's what it's like. So you can imagine like a little... You might get a little lecker, a record from your insurance salesman that talks about like how great State Farm is, that sort of thing. Uh, used for advertising, but once again, very few people have the technology because it is very expensive because it's held by only these three companies. If you go over one slide, you're going to see some of these labels. Uh, you see an Edison record, you see a Victor record. That's actually after they merged with RCA because you can see the doggy. And then you have Columbia. All these are fairly early on. Remember, they own the recording process. Now, the actual artists who record these uh, records, the actual artists who do recording, um, they are not exactly the the tip of the world. They are not the biggest, okay? They are not the biggest. They're not the big-time known ones. Um, you know, your, your best-known, you know, great singers, best-known, like, sopranos or, you know, opera stars or the, the really high, high, high-class, um, high celebrity element of it, they don't touch recording. At all, mainly because the technology was very much in its infancy, um, you know these recording contracts don't pay very much. Uh, the sound is abysmal usually uh, they, they don't have things like mixing equipment yet if you've ever been with any sort of recording, uh, maybe you do some recording on your own like for instance i'm recording this right now, and I will admit i 'm not the best recorder, but you know even my, my little laptop upon which i'm recording this uh, this podcast, this little lecture, has a whole you know equalizer, all sorts of recording equipment that I could use, all sorts of uh, different measurements, different uh, mixing I can do to make it sound even better. Um, hopefully it sounds pretty good, but like I have a noise gate and things like that. At this time, none of that existed. It's pretty much you recorded it in one take. I mean, with this, let's say I flub a word, I can stop, I can go over again. At uh, this time period, you couldn't do that. You couldn't just edit the best together. And because this is a very new technology, it has a very limited audience base. Uh, it doesn't sound very good, you know. It, if you're a high musician, if you're a very you know well-known musician, it may not be ideal for you to record on something like this because you know you sound better on stage, and you don't want to dilute your brand by recording on a new material. Also, way more money could be made on stage. Way more money could be made on stage. I uh, Remember, there is a fairly small audience base for records in this time period. Uh, they're about eh, $0.50 cents to $2 a piece, which is expensive, but there's not a lot of people who can buy it. And also by selling sheet music. If you sell sheet music, you're, you're more prone to make a lot more money. Remember, uh, way more people have pianos in this time period than they have recording equipment, or, or record players, shall I say. You know most places do have a piano, most barrooms have a piano uh most once you get into like middle class and upper class houses they have a planet piano. you can learn how to play your own music. uh the people who did record those who did record were generally very young artists, those who don't really have a reputation. those who theoretically take the hit because they don't have that much of a reputation, they don't have much of a uh, audience base to draw upon and it's very limited. There's not very many people who are recorded. You don't have this idea that oh, I want to go to a recording company oh, I want to be big into the music, you know, that's where I get it to it. Uh, You know, musicians who do want to become big and famous generally go to the club scene or to, um, I mean, the stage if you can get it. Uh, That does start to change a little bit once there are some uppers in sales. Once sales start going up a little bit, uh, more musicians are a little bit interested in doing this. Now, this all changed in 1919 and into uh, 1920, but mainly 1919. Uh, A whole series of lawsuits came around, basically taking down uh, Victor and Columbia's patents. It said that uh, basically these patents were unfair because they owned parts of the recording process, and pretty much it did not allow any other company to remarkably do anything because there's only a certain number of ways you go to court in this time period, and the, uh, the patents that they had were viewed as predatory because there was literally no other way that Victor and Columbia could expect a competitor to replicate the process with an entirely new system. Uh, when this happens, very quickly, with this monopoly over, all sorts of companies come into existence, pretty much the floodgates are open, Way more people can start making content. Way more people can start making uh, the the music itself, the, the records themselves. Uh, Columbia and Victor and some other companies still owned most of the process for like you know making the record players, with the idea that nobody else could record on them uh, because it's a medium that that is viewed as something which uh, you know is I don't want to say predatory, but it's impossible. It'd be like if you know a sony t v owned certain airwaves, you know, like certain frequencies like that that's impossible. There's only a certain number of ways you can transmit t v s things or you know um Apple patented the keyboard, you know, so like um uh, you know you can only type on a keyboard if it's an apple computer, then other companies have to figure out their own way to type in text. they're like, you know what that's that's a little too much. Uh, So with this monopoly over, all sorts of companies come in very, very quickly, super quickly. Tons of companies come in. The market is really, uh, really broadened. Uh, Now that more companies are allowed to make these record players and make records, uh, the price of it gets a lot cheaper, uh, gets considerably cheaper. That's something that generally happens once patents go away and more people can make stuff. The price generally goes down for consumers. Uh, They really try to fill niche markets. Uh, The idea of a nationwide, like here's what recorded music is for across the country, hadn't really developed yet. Uh, Lines of communication within the country are still getting strengthened through things like the telephone. Um, In fact, this is one of the things that helps bring together a real national pop culture, a real national element of that. So most of these early record companies are really appealing to a certain group. Uh, you know, maybe like an immigrant group or people in a certain town or a certain large city. however, some become aware that maybe we can change some perceptions, maybe we can change the way that people view us, view our ethnic group, or view our race in addition uh those uh recording people, those uh singers who started recording early, they become viewed as the definitive artist uh their music is being able to be heard in more places, so uh, they're the ones who are actually getting a lot more attention, and it becomes more of the definitive version. Um, you know, somebody who sings live uh may not be quite as popular because more people have heard the recorded version, and when they hear it live, they want to hear the recorded version. Uh that's still kind of a principle even to this day. Uh generally, you know, the version that is performed in studio is deemed to be the definitive version and the version people want to hear. Uh an example of this is with uh, soundtracks of like Broadway shows, uh the Hamilton soundtrack, for instance. Uh, the Hamilton soundtrack was not recorded live on stage. It was recorded uh, in a studio, because that's where most cast albums are recorded. in studio. And uh, a live performance is very different, you know, different cues or different ways. And so if all you've heard, I, in fact, I know people who, like, whenever they saw Hamilton, they're like, you know, it was okay. But it, it, they didn't do it exactly like they did on the, on the, on the cast album. And that's something that really starts happening only here. Now, the definitive version is the recorded version, which is inherently something which was done once or edited together several times. In fact, a lot of times it's impossible to replicate something recorded uh, because of the way everything is layered up. But this really opens the floodgates for a lot more people to get into this. And in particular, we're going to talk about African Americans. Um, Black voices had been recorded Fairly early, but only in certain genres. Uh, Very certain genres do they allow African Americans to get into. Uh, These genres tend to be what was called the Coon Song. If you go over one slide, you will see them. Uh, These are Coon Songs. Basically, they want African Americans to kind of act as very minstrel-esque novelties, you know, talking about the Deep South, um, all sorts of racist racist stereotypes I really don't want to get into. Uh, if a black person was able to record, those were the genres during which they recorded in. Now the keyword there is if a black person was able to record uh, a lot of times these companies would actually hire a white singer to sing in a blackface manner basically to sing as a black person, even though the song might have been written by a black musician. A lot of times you have black songwriters remember songwriters had more money in this time period um. You know, they might write a song as a black person for a black singer, but the record company is going to pick a white singer to sing it in a "quote unquote" black voice. If you go and look at the the Kuhn songs here, uh, most of these are actually white singers performing in a black voice. Um, let's see. Uh, uh, okay, my Yiddish Mammy, which uh, <laughs> thankfully they did not put Eddie Kurter, Cantor in blackface for that for that one, but he's clearly a Jewish guy. Um, talking about his, his mammy, which is a term they use for African-American mothers, uh, you you will see all sorts of very, very, very racist stereotypes there with that. Um, Mary Irwin's new Coon song hints, All Coons Look Alike to Me, that is a uh, wow. We'll just go with that. That That's really, really racist. Let's say that's very racist. Uh, absolutely. And so this is not particularly... Look fondly upon by a lot of African Americans. A lot of African Americans aren't really crazy about this. They think it's a little bit degrading. A uh, little bit degrading, obviously degrading. And one of these guys who really wants to change the perceptions, who feels like, you know what, African Americans really get a bad rap to begin with, and now it's going to be super awful, is Roland Hayes. Uh, if you look at Roland Hayes, there he is right there. Uh, he is a classically trained singer, all right? Uh, he was born in 1877 in Georgia to former slaves. Uh, he really becomes enamored of classical music uh, whenever he hears a record of an Italian tenor by the name of Enrico Caruso. Uh, Caruso is one of the few, like, very well-known singers, very well, like, famous singers, who does recording early. Most most early, um, you know, real singers, real, like, popular singers don't do recording. Caruso is one of them. He's an Italian tenor. He does, like, classical music, opera arias, things like that. Uh, once Hayes hears it, he's, he's inspired. He wants to become a, a classically trained tenor. Uh, You know, he goes to Fisk University in Nashville. He starts learning classical music there, later goes on to New York City, becomes a legitimate classically trained tenor, like legitimately trained um, opera singer. Problem is uh, a lot of recording companies and also theaters don't really see a lot of potential in him. Uh, For instance, he does a very early uh, sound test for Thomas Edison. And if you look at what Thomas Edison says about him, you know, Roland Hayes, color tenor, can't see any value in his voice. The idea that, you know, Edison's like, you know what? I, I just don't see any dollar signs here. People don't want to hear black musicians singing opera. But Hayes thinks it could really change some lives. Remember, his life was changed because listening to Caruso's records. So even though a record company won't take him on, Hayes gets the idea, you know what? I'm going to go. OK, I'm going to go and kind of buy my own way into this. I'm going to buy my own way into this. Uh, basically, he goes to Columbia. All right. He goes to Columbia and Columbia has one of those vanity presses. We talked to you about that. I talked to you about that where it was like, you know, um, you know, like civic groups or, or churches create their little novelty records. Uh, it's a very small batch they make because they're not really willing to do it. But pretty much if you have the money, you can be recorded. And that's what Hayes does. Hayes is willing to pay, and basically, it's a very high amount of money he has to pay. It's like fifty dollars for just uh, one press of a single sided record, uh, three hundred dollars if you want to orchestra on a double sided disc, and making the copies are, are very expensive. Um, you know, if you even if you pay thirty fifty dollars for it, you only get three copies of the finished disc, and then it's like one dollar each for the next fifty. So they are very pricey, uh, considering that most records in this time period. Sold for about eh, 25 cents or so. Uh, the fact that these discs are like a dollar a piece, so four times the cost for only a one-sided record. Um, it, it's a pricey proposition. Still, Hayes does it. You can see right there, uh, if you go over one side, you will see the personal record for Roland Hayes. He does Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. It's a, it's a Negro spiritual, but it's, a, it's done in the classical arrangement. And then later on, he would re- record two songs, Twilight and I Hear You Calling, as well as the operatic aria Vesta Gubbia from La Piccini, which is a, you know Italian opera. And here's the thing. He is, this is a huge initial investment. And this is a huge initial investment, uh, considering that uh, these are very expensive. These are very expensive. Also, the idea that, you know, do African-Americans have enough money to buy this? Are there enough uh, upper-class African-Americans to warrant this thing? But uh, it actually does okay for a little while. It goes okay for a little while, uh, mainly because uh, Roland Hayes starts trying to hire different people across the country to serve as sales agents for him. Basically, telling the black folks, the black folks of means in their town, hey, there's this operatic tenor. His name is Roland Hayes. By buying this record, we can prove to white America that, you know, as black people, we are capable of not just appreciating these genres, but financially supporting it. Now, one of the people he hires to do this is a man by the name of George Broom. Uh, George Broom is based in Boston. He's based in Boston. Uh, Hayes in this time period is based primarily in New York. Uh, basically, he's like, all right, George, you're gonna be my, my sales manager in, in Boston. Uh later on, he gets the promotion. Uh sorry, Broom gets the promotion to be like Hayes' number one guy. Uh later on, they do break it off mainly because of finances. Uh, apparently, Broom is not being completely forthright with his finances to Roland Hayes. Still, Roland Hayes is probably, not probably, he is the first African American to, like, record music of an African American, try to make money off of it. Now, even though Broom is dismissed by uh, Hayes, he does make his own record label. In fact, this is the first black-owned record label. Um, he forms um, the Broom Special Phonograph Company in 1919. Oh, I should mention, uh, Hayes is doing all this stuff in like 1916, 1917. So before the lawsuits uh, break the monopoly. But now the monopoly is broken, uh, Broom is like, hey, I can make my own record label. I can uh, put issue out my own records. I don't have to deal with Columbia. So basically, uh, Broom contracts out to one of these cheaper manufacturing interests, which is mushroomed up since the patents have gone down. Uh, He's also able to make double-sided records. Uh, Basically, you know, Broom thinks because of the lawsuits, because of the fact that it's more available and that the patents are stripped, um, I can do something about it. And and Broom starts issuing his own records. Now, there's not too too many of these records that are issued. Uh, I want to say only like 12 are issued in all. And they kind of go into the same thing of high-class stuff. A lot of spirituals, a lot of operatic um, arias, uh, some various sopranos, some violinists are doing it. Basically, it's the idea showing that uh, we're going to record black music, and we're going to show this in a high-class genre. Uh, to help with his sales, he even does um, a release, a re-release of a Booker T. Washington speech of the Atlantic uh, Address, which itself was actually a copy of another copy done by Columbia back in 1908. So he's reissuing old records. Uh, Be aware of the idea of reissuing old records because that's about to become a thing once we get into the next guy. Uh, By the time we get to 1923, that is when uh, Broom goes out of business. Uh, A lot of companies go out of business around 1923 or so. We're going to talk about that in just a second. But now we get to the real guy we're talking about. We're talking about the guy that I've spent, oh, the past years of 10 years or so of my life writing a lot about... Um, I've become about as intimately knowledgeable. You can know somebody who died about, uh, you know, 70, 80 years ago. And that is Harry H. Pace, who founds Black Swan Records. Black Swan Records is the first African-American-owned record label to really have national distribution. You know, George Broom, uh, well, sorry, Roland Hayes is selling out of New York, mainly trying to sell with other agents. Uh, George Broom is selling mainly around Boston. Uh, Harry Pace, however, is able to really sell across the nation and even internationally. And it's the first black-owned record label. And it's really trying to get into this idea of respectability. Now, a lot of this comes from Pace's own background. Uh, Harry Pace, if you go over a couple, you'll see a picture of a young Harry Pace. Uh, You can tell he has a very light complexion, a super, super light complexion. Uh, He is a quadruple. He is a quadroon. Uh, the term quadroon in this time period means somebody who is one-fourth black. Um, of their four grandparents, uh, one of them is African-American. The rest of them are white. However, in this time period, it is still considered a black person. Uh, he's born in 1884 in Covington, Georgia. Uh, his dad was a blacksmith, I believe. It, well, his, da- his parents were slaves. Uh, and then after, after slavery, his dad became a blacksmith. Uh, later on, he's he's clearly a very intelligent man. His dad dies when he's fairly young, but his dad does have some means. Uh, Pace is like very very intelligent man. Even as a teenager, he's able to go to Atlanta University. Uh, Atlanta University is one of these new um, one of these new HBCUs. Well, they're not historic at the time period; they're just black colleges and universities that really come up after um, abolition. Once the Civil War is over, once slavery is abolished, you do have a lot of these universities coming into place. Um, Harry Pace, like I said, he's a very bright young man. Everybody knows he's got you know great expectations, or whatever you call it. Uh, while he's at Atlanta University, later becomes Clark at Atlanta University, uh, he is lucky enough to get W.E.B. Du Bois as his professor. Uh, pretty much, he becomes one of Du Bois's star pupils. Uh, du Bois really takes him under his wing, becomes his mentor. Um, du Bois, if you don't know about Du Bois, very, very important early black thinker, one of the founders of the NAACP, uh, super important. I, 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 and this is one of these times where I have to cut myself off because I can talk about this guy for a long time. But just know that Du Bois is super important in the African American world early on. Uh, once Harry Pace graduates from college, he graduates from college very young. He's only like 18 years old whenever he graduates from college. Uh, clearly great expectations placed on this kid. Everybody knows he's going to be brilliant. Everybody knows he's going to be super successful. Uh, he bounces around for a while. He's a teacher for a while. He's a professor of Greek and Latin at a, um, at a black uh, secondary school in uh, Arkansas for a while. Uh, is an early member of the NAACP. In fact, he helps found the NAACP chapter in Atlanta. Uh, probably the thing he does that's is most important, though, is he works at a bank in Memphis for a while. Uh, he joins a black bank in Memphis. Now, I should mention this. Um, in this time period, African Americans were not allowed to bank with white interests. So you have to have a you know black-owned bank. Uh, banks are important for business in general because they lend money. It's also good for buying houses. Uh, it's hard to buy a house without a mortgage, particularly in this time period. And so basically, he is the head cashier of the bank. He's also responsible for trying to raise money for the bank. Uh, under him, the um, the bank does very well. He gets pretty interested into finance. But also at the bank, he makes a very – he's honestly – Harry Pace is like the Forrest Gump of like earliest 20th century black America because like he knows everybody and ultimately he gets beef with a lot of people too. But one of the people he uh, he meets while he's working at this bank is W.C. Handy. Uh, W.C. Handy, if you've never heard of W.C. Handy, he's often called the father of the blues, He's called the Father of the Blues. He is a very important musician, very important songwriter and uh, particularly with a ranger. He has a, he has his own little band. He does a lot of songwriting and mainly printing uh, sheet music of the songs he makes. A lot of what we know of Blues music comes from WC Handy, Not that he necessarily invented it, but he made it popular. Uh, Handy himself is from Florence, Alabama, which is in you know the very northeast corner of Alabama. Uh, most people in this area, most black people in this area eventually get to Memphis because that's the big city. Um Handy is just needs a, a bank in this time period. He meets Pace. Uh Pace is, you know, young. He's very articulate. Uh actually pretty known as a, a songwriter himself, and also as a soloist. Harry Pace is quite in demand in the uh Sunday um so the, the Sunday evening church social sing, which is a thing back then. So after he meets WC Handy, um, you know they kind of hit it off, and uh, Pace, who's always been very interested in business, says, "Hey, you know what? Maybe we can open up a publishing business on our own. Maybe we could start a sheet publishing business." He's like, "You know, you're, you're issuing sheet music for all these white people." You know, you're making some money, but they're making the most money. If we owned our own business, and, you know, we know all the great black musicians, and, you know, you're W.C. Handy, you're very famous already, maybe we can earn more of the money ourselves. And they do. They make the Pace and Handy Music Company. If you go over some, you'll see Pace and Handy together. There they are. There's W.C. Handy. There's Harry Pace. You can see in 1919, they're putting out all their hits. Um, You know, the St. Louis Blues is probably the most popular of these early things. You can see right there, published by the Pace and Handy Music Company. Uh, WC Handy wrote the St. Louis Blues. He also wrote the Memphis Blues. Uh, later on, Harry Pace would claim that he actually wrote these songs, which uh whatever. Harry Pace is an interesting cat. We'll just say that. Uh, so they have this business, it's going on pretty well. Also, I should mention, I should mention that uh Harry Pace also gets very interested in insurance of this time period. Uh he even starts an insurance business called the Standard Life Insurance Company. Uh, just like banks, most black people in this time period were not allowed to buy insurance from white insurance companies. Insurance is something else, too, which you might need once you get older. Uh, y'all, y'all are young and, you know, y'all don't have that much assets, I don't think. Sorry, that's not a, that's not an accusatory of where you're from. It's just like, you know, when you get older, you have kids, you have a mortgage, you have stuff like that. And things you really want to take care of. Um you know, you don't want your debts to outlive you. That's one of the things that life insurance helps is basically it's, it's around money that you, you know, you pay the life insurance company some money. And if you die, they pay you money. Well, they pay your heirs money so that your wife and kids and any debts you might have are taken care of. Um, Pace is very interested in this. So as you can tell, he's kind of a renaissance man, has his finger in a lot of different pies. You know, he's working at the bank. He's very big in education, very big in financing. And also he's doing the music business. Now, as he is doing the music business, he claims that he um he he hits a color line, which he says is very severe. He says there is a color line that is very severe, mainly in that you know recording companies are becoming more popular, um, pace and handy. songs are very popular in the in the songwriting world and the uh, in the sheet music world. And so now that more people are recording, uh, now that there's you no know, more access for recording, Maybe we could, you know, make some money off of that. And they're finding that, you know, the record companies are buying these songs to, like, you know, record. And they give them some money, but they're recording them with white artists. And and Pace and Handy are upset. Uh, Particularly Handy is is quite upset about this. And um, there is talk of maybe we should do something about this. Maybe we should start our own record company. Now, Pace ultimately does that, and actually he breaks with Handy. Um, even though they had a fairly cordial relationship, uh, pretty much seemingly overnight, Pace leaves. Uh, Pace breaks apart the partnership between Pace and Handy and takes most of the office staff with him. This leaves uh, Pandy high and dry with most of the, uh, the debt of the company. Uh, Handy would, said like he pretty much went blind with hysteria for like six months after this happened. But later on, decades later, uh, he and Pace reconciled and Pace paid him back the money he was owed. So, Andy always had a pretty nice thing to say about Pace, but you can tell for a while he was really pissed off at Pace. So, basically, Pace decides he wants to make his own record label. He, he, might, he might have been aware of Broom. Uh, they're in different places in this time period, but uh, they're definitely in different places in this time period. Uh, but, you know, Pace is like, okay, maybe we can do this. Uh, Pace is also very, very insistent about making high-class records, with a black audience for very high black sorry with a black uh, with a black for a black audience with black performers. He wants to prove that Black Americans is financially supportive of a label and also culturally appreciate genres certain genres. He wants to make high class records. And of course, he he leans upon, he leans upon W.B. Du Bois. Uh, is his mentor, Du is the guy that he leans upon, that's his respectability angle is Du Bois. And Bois is like, got a lot of influence, a lot of, you know, a lot of just cachet within the African-American world in this time period. And DuBois, like, helps financially support him. He serves on the board of directors of this new company, uh, gives him numerous ads within the crisis, which is a very important uh, magazine done, published by the NAACP, pretty much gives it free advertising, uh, is an initial event, investor in the company, uh, it is called Black Swan Records. Uh, it's named in honor of a famous black singer. Uh, she's a singer in Europe. She is African American, like, you know, from America and black. Uh, she's called the Black Swan because she's an opera singer, very famous in Europe, not necessarily too famous in America because America doesn't think black people can do opera, but, you know, in Europe they think they can. And it, it's called Black Swan Records. And You can see with these ads, he's really leaning upon this idea that it is a legitimately black company. It's not just, hey, this is fun music. It's like, this is good music. This is music for black people. Uh, You can see, look there on the left, reasons why you should buy Black Swan Records. The greatest care is taken in the selection of Black Swan artists and in the recording of the Black Swan materials. It's the only records made and controlled exclusively by Negroes. Uh, The only records upon which leading Negro artists can be heard. The best colored records. Superiority of it, if you have any any, any reason to doubt, it is the best. Black Swan Records are the best. So it's not just, hey, we're good music. It's, hey, we're important for the race. Likewise, you see right here the Black Swan Records are the only exclusive color records and also are made by a colored company. Ironically, we're going to get into this. Um, seven of those records listed, so about half of those, are actually white artists. <laughs> We'll talk about that in just a second. This is where it gets weird. Actually, why it gets weird is the reason why I study this, because it's funny. Now, there are some early woes of the recording. A lot of it has to do with who is going to publish this stuff, who is going to manufacture it. He's able to do recording pretty easily, but then you get to manufacturing, making the discs themselves. And a lot of companies aren't willing to do with it. A lot of companies are not willing to do business with a black company. Uh, the only one they're able to do business with is in Columbia. Uh, sorry, not with Columbia. It's in Wisconsin with Paramount. Uh, the Wisconsin Chair Company, remember, furniture companies made a lot of these early record players. The Wisconsin Chair Company is starting to make records themselves. And they're like, hey, you know what? Uh, it's business. You know, your, your money's green. We don't really care what color you are. Um, you know, it is basically based in Wisconsin. It's on the shores of Lake Michigan. Um, You know, kind of near Chicago, about two hours away from Chicago, but definitely in Wisconsin. Uh, You know, we have to contract out. And so there is a disconnect because Pace is recording in New York City. However, he has to, like, send the masters over to Wisconsin to be, you know, manufactured. And then they have to get shipped back to New York City, and then he distributes them to the rest of the country. So as you can tell, there's a lot of delays there. You know, there's a several-month, if not year, delay between recording and when things get on the shelves. Now, although he has a huge slate early on of, like, all these black-owned, not black-owned, but black-recorded opera arias, spirituals, high-class genres, uh, nobody buys them. Um, they they do not do very well. They, do, they don't do very well. Uh, what does do well for them is a woman by the name of Ethel Waters. If you go over right there, you'll see Ethel Waters. She is a blues singer. She's a blues singer, and she single-handedly saves the company. Had it not been for Ethel Waters, who Pace was lucky enough to discover, uh, she would later on become a you know singer for different record labels. I think she eventually goes to Columbia, who pays her like quadruple what Pace was paying her. Uh, she makes it into like the '60s and '70s. Uh, my parents even performed with her once. Um, my mom and dad uh, even performed once with Ethel Waters. So this is crazy how I'm somewhat connected with this. Now, granted, this was in the '70s, late late '60s, early '70s, whenever she was much older and touring with the Billy Graham crusade. But um, still, you know, so that's my kind of connection here, is my my mommy and daddy uh, once sang with Ethel Waters. So Ethel Waters, she is a blues singer. And remember, at first, Pace is kind of hesitant about recording blues. It still seems a very um, low-class genre. It's not as high-class. It's not like dirty. It's not like jazz, which just seems just like, oh, you know, that's, that's filthy music in this time period. But blues, you know, you know, W.C. Handy was known as a father of the blues. Um, I mean, yeah, so he—it's not like he's against the blues, but he's like, eh, I wanted to make sure that opera arias, that the operatic arias and stuff, would best prove our class elements for this record company. Still, you got to make money, and Ethel Waters is making them money. Uh, they end the year of 1920 uh, with amazing sales. Uh, basically, they're one of these you know record companies that come out after the uh, the fall of the the patents, and there are tons of good sales. And so, with the success of Ethel Waters, um, they start recording in more lower class genres. Even though Pace's advertisements talks all about the high class genres. Uh, what sells is the lower class stuff, blues. Uh, he even starts recording some jazz, which is very controversial for the time period. A lot of black folks don't like jazz because they think it's bad for perceptions of the race. Uh, however, the jazz music that uh, Black Swan does record is very cool, very restrained, very, 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 very heavily um, orchestrated. Uh, there's a man by the name of Fletcher Henderson. Uh, Fletcher Henderson. Who does the arrangements for Black Swan? He's a, another classically trained pianist, and he hates like dirty music. He says he's like I'm a, a classically trained musician. I know how to read music. I like you know the high class stuff. So if I'm gonna play um, if I'm gonna play jazz, it's gonna be the most restrained, respectful jazz on the entire planet. Um, this really annoys some of the musicians recorded with him, uh, particularly Ethel Waters, who is their biggest star. Uh Ethel Waters says, like, man, I, I hated Fletcher Henderson. They they later, you know, patch things up like in the 50s and 60s. But he's like, man, Fletcher Henderson would not play in what she called a, a damn it all to hell style. Uh still, Ethel Waters is their their biggest success. Uh they do pass up on other artists. You know, Black Swan becomes like the premier black-owned record label, but even even though they're recording in some lower-class genres, uh, they're not willing to record. Um Certain musicians, uh, particular um, Bessie Smith, who becomes like a very big queen of jazz in this time period. Afterwards, for another label, um, apparently during the recording session, during the sound test for her, uh, she's like, "Hold on, boys, I got a spit," and she spits on the floor. And apparently, uh, Harry Pace is like, "Ah, that's that's too low class. You know, we I run a respectable joint." And so, even though uh, she later becomes one of the biggest musicians of the time period, he passes on her. So Black Swan's doing well. They're they're starting to, to grow. Uh, they're starting to get really big. Uh, the problem is manufacturing and, and, and distribution. Uh, distribution is always an issue with um, with record labels, pretty much until t- the internet comes about. But mainly that distance. You know, it's very popular for the Ethel Waters Records. She's super popular. You know, sales are coming in. And sometimes uh, too much success can be bad for a company that's not ready to do it because you have so many. You know, sales. You're you're so many orders ready to go, and they just don't have the capacity to make it. And so if you tell a customer, hey, you know, we can give you the record, but it's going to take like four or five, maybe even six months for it to be made, eh, the the customer may not want that. So the fact that Black Swan Records, you know, they get recorded in New York, then they have to go all the way to Wisconsin, and then they come all the way back, and then they go all the way to the sales, you know, to the stores, uh, that becomes an issue. And Pace gets a chance to buy a recording pressing plan, actually buy his own manufacturing facility uh, from a firm that goes bankrupt. Uh, The Olympic record company had gone bankrupt, and they're based in Long Island. Uh, They're based in Long Island. They're a a wide-owned firm. They went bankrupt. They have all this recording equipment, and mainly importantly, they have pressing equipment. They have manufacturing equipment. And he also becomes partners with John Fletcher. Uh, The Fletcher Music Company comes about Uh, John Fletcher is a white man. He's a white man whose only client is Black Swan Records and becomes, like, co-president of the John Fletcher Company, of whom Black Swan Records is the only company associated with it. So there are some issues about, is this a black-owned company anymore? Now these lines are about to get super confusing uh, because Pace has to spend a lot of money to buy this recording plant, uh, to buy this pressing plant. Yes, he's getting a lot of sales, but even if you have a lot of sales, you know, it costs money. Now, he thinks he can make it up. You know, he's like, hey, we're now able to produce the number of records we have. You know, it's super popular. But he still needs easy money. Now, as part of the sale of, uh, sorry, as part of the purchase of Olympic records, he is able to buy their masters, all right? Basically, he gets their masters as well in the sale and a lot of these are white artists who recorded these old coon songs, who recorded these songs in quote-unquote blackface. And basically, because he needs the money, Pace starts releasing these artists under black pseudonyms. Uh, they are white artists singing in quote-unquote blackface for a black-owned record company who is very insistent about, you know, we are the racially pure people, not racially pure, that makes it sound like they're white supremacists or really, something, but like, you know, we're a, we're a black-owned company and we are very keen on that. Like For instance, um, let's see, Honey Rose and Mandy and Me, done by Mamie Jones. There was no Mamie Jones. Her name was Eileen Stanley. She was a white woman. Very popular. Uh, F- Henderson's Dance Orchestra. That had nothing to do with Fletcher Henderson. Fletcher Henderson wasn't he black uh, This is not Fletcher Henderson's Dance Orchestra. He had no idea they existed. Uh, Ethel Waters' Jazz Masters had nothing to do with Ethel Waters. They are white artists. Uh, now Pace had even done a little bit of this. Uh, it's not well known how, it's not known how well known this was. Uh, Fletcher Henderson, for instance, who was like second in charge of Black Swan Records, said he had no idea about this. Uh, Ethel Waters definitely had no no idea about this. Pretty much the only people we knew, knew for certain, are Harry Pace and John Fletcher. Uh... Most of the people recorded, like, I wonder, you know, some of the black artists who recorded were like, you know, I, I never met this person, but like, again, yeah, I'm not a recording studio every day. Now, it's also interesting, it's right about this time that Harry Pace catches major beef with Marcus Garvey. Uh, Marcus Garvey, if you've never heard of him, is another very important face in black, uh, black America of this time period. A bit of a black separatist, very much in black pride. He's like, you know, we should have black-owned businesses. Uh, black people should maybe go back to Africa. The United States has no business with us. You know, the United States doesn't want us. Um, Harry Pace is one of the people who sent a letter to the president of the United States saying Marcus Garvey is dangerous. Uh, basically, he's undermining everything that we're trying to do to build an integrated society in America. Uh, in response, you will see the burn right there that Marcus Garvey uh, leveled against Harry Pace saying that he was a quadroon married to an octoroon, which is accurate, actually. Harry Pace wasn't even a quadroon, one-fourth black, married to an octoroon. His wife, Ethelyn, Ethelyn Bibb, was one-eighth black. Um, that is a picture of Harry Pace. As you can see, um, his features are, are are very light complexion, shall we say. Has a very light complexion. Uh, however, Black Swan, just when it seems to be going, uh, going well... Uh, it actually tanks. Like, right after they buy the, the new factory, it really tanks. Uh, part of it's just because of the strain, the strain of the factory. I mean, like, you know, he he strained his resources, strained his capital. Um, he did it because they had such massive sales and they needed to get the, uh, the things out there. But like I said, sometimes uh, success can be bad for a big company. Now, in addition to this, um, Black Swan artists, once they start getting popular, are getting poached by other record labels for more money. Even Ethel Waters. Ethel Waters is getting about four or five times the amount of money with another record label that she was getting with Black Swan. So you can't really blame her for, for going for another record lo- company that pays her a lot more. You know, it's funny to say, hey, we're doing this for like, you know, Black Pride or like, hey, we're going to help out the African American race by having this company. And, you know, you can be somebody who's really big on Black rights, but you're also like, hey, I get paid four times as much. But what really hurt it is the thing you read about the radio. Uh, radio really, 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 really messes up uh, a lot of record labels, not just Black Swan. Uh, Black Swan is one of many. Uh, Black Swan is one of many record labels that goes under this time period um, because of the radio. Uh, radio uh, a radio costs about 50 bucks, which is the same that a record player costs as well. The thing is, though, if you buy a radio, you get infinite music, as opposed to a record player where it's like anywhere from 50 cents to a dollar per song, you know, per record. So basically for the same amount of money, you get all the music as opposed to some music. And for most people, they're like, you know what, I'd rather go with that. Uh, radio's just become super popular. You read about it, you know more about radio but since you read that. Uh, the aftermath of all this is actually quite interesting. Uh, Harry Pace is an interesting cat. I'll just give you a little, little quick uh, what happens to him afterwards. Uh, Black Swan is actually ultimately sold to Paramount. Uh, Paramount is the, is the private label, is the, the house label of the Wisconsin Chair Company. Uh, ironically, the people who were doing the manufacturing of Black Swan records uh, before he tried to buy that pressing plant in Long Island, they're the ones who end up buying the company. And they actually even kept the name for a while. They try to keep the name Black Swan, Uh, Try to claim that, hey, we're going to reissue Black Swan Records, keep the whole, like, you know, with a high-class record label for African-Americans going on. Uh, Tries to do that during the Depression. The Great Depression pretty much kills all the other record companies. Ironically, Paramount is able to survive because of the Wisconsin Chair Company. Uh, Because it's a very well-known chair company, uh, it makes furniture for, like, Sears and Robux and also makes school desks for the schools of Wisconsin and Illinois. So that's a pretty fat contract. Um, they don 't need record sales to keep in business. Pace, however, kind of moves on. He actually becomes way more successful than he ever was at Black Swan with an insurance company uh he 's with the standard life standard liberty life insurance company basically it 's a merger of three different life insurance companies. Uh, it becomes the biggest black owned insurance company in the entire country it's <coughs> um, it 's huge it 's based in Chicago. He moves to Chicago. He actually spends a lot of his life in Chicago. Um, he goes to law school at the University of Chicago. He's one of the first black students at the University of Chicago Law School. Uh, starts his own law firm, which is housed within the standard life insurance company. So he's president of this insurance company. He's also head of a law firm. Uh, he actually gets involved with the Hansberry Lee case. Uh, Hansberry v. Lee is a very famous civil rights case. It has to do with black people living into quote-unquote white neighborhoods. Uh, the daughter of this, the daughter of the guy involved in this case, um, she actually writes the play *Raisin in the Sun*, which you might be familiar with, which is about pretty much the exact same thing—a black family moving into a white neighborhood. Now, he's actually involved in the uh, trial for this. It's really interesting because he gets kind of squirrely about his background, and this is where it gets really interesting. Um, Harry Pace, you know—he and his wife Ethelyn, they are very light complexion, quadroon, octoroon. They have two children. Um, Harry Pace also moves into a white neighborhood in this time period. He moves into a white neighborhood, and unlike, uh, the Lee family, who basically is like, hey, we're very black, he decides for the sake of his children to pass. Uh, pass is basically say that he's a white person. Um, even though he's very involved with black interests, you know, like his business is literally a black-owned business, um, he is trying to live as a white person, like, he claims he pretty much strips his house of everything, you know, black, doesn't allow any black art, like anything, you know, down goes pictures of black stuff, up goes pictures of Shakespeare, um, mainly for his children. Once his children go to college, they're like, hey, if we ever meet anybody, you know, if we want to, like, you know, date them, we we don't want them to know our family is black because maybe that will upset them, maybe that will, like, ruin our relationship. And so pretty much for the sake of his children, he, he, he goes black. Sorry, he goes white. He passes for white. Uh, this is uh, kind of controversial once it comes out to his employees. Oh, I should mention he uh, starts he starts mentoring a man by the name of John Johnson, John H. Johnson, who later forms uh, things like Jet and Ebony magazine. Uh, pretty much, Jet and Ebony come out of Harry Pace, even though he's not the one directly responsible for it. Uh, John Johnson, the guy who founds these magazines, is heavily influenced by Harry Pace. Uh, he Harry Pace is his mentor. Very akin to the way that Du Bois is Pace's mentor, I should mention that he and Du Bois are still in, in heavily contact around this time, still very friendly. However, when his employees at Standard Liberty life find out he is trying to pass, they decide they're going to like you know strike they're going like march on his house embarrass his neighbors, kind of reveal him, unmask him to the world, you know, show that him being white is nothing but a facade he's just passing uh ultimately he he, he calms it down. He's like, fine. He, he, he It's a very sad ending to his life. I mean, not that passing is anything to be, like, you know, proud of. But uh, they ultimately decide not to do that. And he dies very shortly thereafter. Very shortly after that, he does die. Uh, theoretically of a broken heart, some say. Others say it's just like a straight-up heart attack. Um, it, It's interesting because, like, neither his mentor nor his mentee really shame him for this. Uh, if you read the stuff that W.D. DuBois says about Harry Pace afterwards, he's like, you know what? He was a good guy. He was one of my favorite students. Um, I knew him since he was a little kid in short pants. Um, he pretty much – DuBois blames his wife. Uh, he blames uh, Pace's wife. Like basically his wife is the one who wanted to do it. Likewise, John Johnson, uh, his you know his mentee, the guy who later makes Jet Navity magazine, says it was mainly because of his children. He's like his children were really pressing it. Neither of them really shame Pace for it. They're like, hey, he was a good guy who did what he did. As you can see, that is where Harry Pace is buried. Uh, He is buried, uh, I believe he's actually, they buried him in New York, even though he died in Chicago. Even though he died in Chicago, they buried him in New York. You can see his wife and also his mother-in-law. His mother-in-law, Viola, right there. His wife, Ethlyn, was right there. She dies in 46. Um, His mother-in-law, ironically enough, outlives them all. And so that about does it for early recording. And, you know, like I said, I try to keep this kind of short because I could go on for hours about Harry Pace. But um, that will about do it for today. So, for Dr. Tully, which is me, have a good one.